here in the service. Today is Pentecost Sunday. Now let me tell you uh, from the Old Testament what that means. In, in Leviticus 23 and in Exodus 32, God gave instructions for the Israelites to hold an annual uh, day, a festival of the harvest. It's sometimes also referred to as the Feast of Weeks. And, and the idea behind it was this, that, that God had led them through the wilderness, brought them into a promised land, provided for them, they put seed in the ground, and now, after, after 40 years of eating manna, they're, they're growing their own stuff now. They're growing their own crops, and God says, I want you to bring the first fruit to me. The first harvest that comes out of the promised land, I want you to bring it as an offering to the Lord. And so Passover, or, or the uh, Pentecost from the beginning, was a day when the Israelite farmers would begin to move towards the presence of God. They weren't just coming to drop an offering in the plate. They understood that the, the presence of God resided in the holy city. It resided at the brazen altar between the cherubims. God said, that's where my presence is. So that's where they would come. So essentially, Pentecost was a day of the people of God pursuing the presence of God. And what's great about that is in Acts chapter 2, it was on the day of Pentecost. And you heard this verse uh, mentioned in worship earlier. On the day of Pentecost, Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit upon the church. And so Pentecost then became a day of the Spirit of God moving towards the people. So here's my desire for this service today. I want you to know right up front. I want Pentecost to once again be a day of men of God pursuing the presence of God and the Spirit of God pursuing men of God. Come on, how about we just meet God in the middle today? Would that be good? Amen. Well, hey, let's just pray right now for this message and that God would speak to us through it. God, I thank you today for the privilege of opening up and expounding on the truth that you've revealed and preserved for us in the word of God. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit wants to say to the church in this place. God, thank you that this day, Pentecost Sunday, is a reminder that you are a God who fulfills your promises. You did exactly what you promised you would do in that moment, and I believe you'll do it again today. For whatever need is represented in this house, God, may we lean in with faith today to a God who keeps his promises. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen. Amen. <clears throat> amen. If you've got your Bible, I want you to go to the book of Acts chapter 2. And, and I'll meet you there in a minute. First, I want to show you a verse in Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 that explains to us why it even matters that there, you know, there are Old Testament celebrations and festivals and things like Pentecost. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, all of these Old Testament celebrations, they, they, they were types and shadows. Jesus said, I've come to bring the substance. What, what you saw was, was a, a predicator of a greater truth that I want to bring. And so, for example, Jesus fulfilled Passover in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God told uh, Moses that, that he was going to send a tenth plague and it was going to be uh, a death angel that would sweep through and it was going to take the firstborn from every household unless the family in that household sacrificed a lamb. And 
cooked the lamb, roasted the lamb, ate the lamb, took some of the blood from the lamb, and put it over the doorpost of their house. So that's what the Israelites did. They, they sacrificed the Paschal lamb, and they put the blood over the doorpost. And so when the death angel came through, he saw the blood, and he passed over those houses. And so then Jesus comes on the scene, and without coincidence, on the weekend of Passover, he's sacrificed on the cross. He, sacri- he, he lays his life down. He essentially says, I am the Paschal Lamb. And he makes a way of salvation so that, so that we can have the penalty of our sins paid for and so that we can be saved. And when Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross, he's sitting at the table with his disciples and he says at the Passover feast, this, is now, this bread now represents my body and this cup represents my blood. As often as you eat this or drink this, do it in remembrance of me. What was he doing? He was giving substance to what had been a shadow. They thought it was all about what God had done for Moses, but how many of you, when you receive communion, are really thanking God for setting the Israelites free from captivity in Egypt? No, we're thanking God for setting us free from the captivity of our own sin. And so he's done the same thing with the celebration of Pentecost. It used to be a celebration of God's provision as they entered the promised land. Leviticus 23.10 says, as you enter the promised land, recognize God's faithfulness. But Jesus takes the occasion to be a celebration of God's provision of the promised one. Not about entering into a promised land, but about a promised one entering into us. Not about God's faithfulness to fill our bellies, but God's faithfulness to fill us with his spirit. And so Pentecost finds its substance in what Christ promised and what Christ delivered. Now, if you're in Acts chapter 2, we're just going to look at the first six verses here. And I want to share a few things with you today. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. I want to take a few moments and I, I want to just speak from from these verses of scripture with you. The day of Pentecost, it, in reality, it, it's a fulfillment of many Old Testament promises and many Old Testament patterns. And, and we would need a, probably a three to five week series to just talk about all of the things in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in this moment in the new. But I just want to share three of them with you from this text. Verse two said there was wind. A sound of a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. The Bible says in Psalm chapter 18, verse 10, he, talking of God, mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. And that's just one example of many verses in the Old Testament where wind is synonymous with the presence of God. When the wind 
begins to blow. The Bible says it was with a mighty east wind that God held back the waters of the Red Sea so that the people could cross by. So that, that wind blowing was synonymous with God's presence. It was the, the cloud that they followed by day that they recognized as the leading of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God led them through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud by day. In Job 38.1, it says God spoke to Job out of the whirlwind. Over and over and over again, Nahum chapter 1 says this, he is, or his way is in the whirlwind and the storm. Clouds are the dust of his feet. So over and over again, God manifests his presence through wind and through clouds. And maybe the most notable story is when Solomon dedicated the temple. When Solomon dedicated the temple to the Lord, the Bible says on that day, while the sacrifices were being made, there were 120 priests that were blowing the trumpets. And when they blowed the trumpets, all of a sudden a cloud descended and filled the temple. God's presence showed up in such a powerful way. It says in First or Second Chronicles 5.14, and the priest could not perform their services because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the temple. So now move forward to Acts chapter 2. It's the day of Pentecost. They're waiting for the promise of the Father that Jesus told them about. And instead of 120 trumpets blowing, Acts 1, 14 and 15 says there was 120 believers. It wasn't the sound of trumpets. It was the sound of the saints lifting up their voice in prayer to God in the upper room when suddenly there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind as God's spirit filled the temple again. It's a powerful moment, but that's not the only moment. Verse 3 says, They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And again, fire is synonymous with the presence of God all throughout the word. We see Moses when he recognizes Something unique happening in the wilderness. The Bible says he saw a bush that was burning and yet was not consumed. And from the fire, he heard the voice of God. It was at night in the wilderness that the Israelites were led by a pillar of fire. When they saw that fire, they knew that was God leading them. It was the fire that Elijah called down on Mount Carmel to consume his sacrifice. And he defeated the 400 prophets of Baal. It was God who answered. He said, may we pray to the God who answers by fire. Who's the God who answers by fire? Well, in that day, it was unequivocally our God in heaven. Fire represents God's presence. One of the even responsibilities of the priest in the old covenant, some of them specifically had the job of tending the fire on the altar. That was their job. It says over and over again in Leviticus, don't let the fire go out. That was their job. Make sure, there's, make sure there's wood on the fire. Make sure there's coals on the fire. And the reason was because when they first established that altar, there was a, a fire from heaven that consumed the sacrifice. Nobody lit the fire. God lit the fire. And because it was the fire of God, they said it's really, really important that nobody lets the fire go out. No one can let the fire go out. And so uh, Leviticus says you have to keep the fire burning on the altar continually. 
Continually. In fact, there were two guys that were serving at the altar, and they weren't doing their job. Their, their names are Nabad and Abihu. And they were serving at the altar, and the fire went out, and so they just, oh, we'll just, we'll just start another fire. And they put strange fire, the Bible says, on the altar. And God judged them for it. The judgment of God falls hard on those that are faking the presence of God. And he says, no, 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 I, I need my fire to be on the altar. He said, now why does that matter to us today? Because the Bible says in 1 Peter 2 and 9, you are a chosen people, you are a royal priesthood. And can I just say, people of God, it is our responsibility in our generation to be the ones that tend the fire on the altar. It's up to the priesthood of the believer to tend the fire on the altar. We don't have the right to sit back and say, Man, where's God in America? No, it's our responsibility to keep the fire burning. That's not the only sign that happened. In verse 2, there was wind. In verse 3, there was, there was fire. But look at verse 4 again. There was tongues. And here's what it says. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, it's funny, some people, they, they talk about the, the gift of tongues or praying in tongues, and they say, well, it just sounds like they're, they're, they're babbling. They're, you're just, somebody's just babbling. Maybe you've heard somebody speak in tongues before, and you didn't really know what it was, and, and you thought that. Like, oh, they're, they're not actually saying anything. They're just babbling, which is an interesting choice of words whenever I hear it, because the gift of tongues on the day of Pentecost was actually a reverse of the curse at Babel. When you go back to Genesis 9, God saved Noah and his family in the ark, put his promise of a rainbow in the sky saying, I'll, I'll, I'll never judge the earth in this way again. And then he gave a command to Noah and to all the people. And the command was to multiply, to scatter, and to cover the earth. So the people go out from that place in Genesis chapter 11, and they decide they don't want to scatter. They don't know what's out there. They don't know what the future holds. And so rather than going and, and increasing and multiplying and covering the earth, they decided to hunker down in the plain of Shinar. And they said, instead of going out and, and, and doing what God said, we think it's better that we stay here. And so they started building the Tower of Babel. They said, we'll build a tower and we'll go up to heaven. And so the Tower of Babel stands as a monument to man saying, I know better than God. That's what Babel represents. I know better than God. Let me show you exactly what they said. In Genesis eleven four. 4, it says, they said to each other, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. It seemed wiser to them to just to, to build a metropolis, to just build a city, to, to make a tower, and, and so they ignored God's clear command in favor of their own wisdom. Can I tell you, it's still happening today. The Tower of Babel will never be finished, but it's still being built. There are people that, that, that espouse to be Christians, people that follow that say they follow God, and yet, yet when it comes to doing what the Lord says, the way the Lord says do it, or doing what seems more, more beneficial in this moment, 
people begin to build their lives and their church with the bricks of Shinar. And I want to tell you today, we, we don't need another Babel. We need another baptism. And so God, on, on the day of Pentecost... Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, and he reverses the curse of Babel. In that moment, God comes down and judges them, and he confuses their language. The Bible says he confused the language, so all these people from the earth that are hunkered down together, building and doing things their own way, God says, I'm going I'm to confuse their language. If you ever wondered why there's so much diversity in the world, it's an illustration of God's grace. Because God said there's no limit to what they can do. There's no limit to their sinful depravity if I let them all be one people. And so he, he diversified the whole world. Different languages, different people groups. And then on the day of Pentecost, they weren't saying we can do this without God. They were waiting for what God promised. Jesus didn't say you're gonna, you're gonna hear wind. He didn't say you're gonna see fire. He didn't say anything about tongues. They didn't even know what God was gonna do. All they knew was that Jesus said, Acts 1-4, go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. And then you'll receive power from on high. So they went to Jerusalem and they said, we've been trained for three and a half years. We've prayed in Jesus' name. We've healed the sick. We've preached the gospel. We've seen the dead raised. But Jesus said, don't think you can do this until you receive the promise. So we're going to go to Jerusalem and we're going to wait. It's the very opposite of the attitude in the plain of Shinar. And so in that moment, as a sign of God's presence and his blessing, all of a sudden, everyone heard the word of God being spoken in their own language. It made sense, and thousands were saved on that day. Thousands were saved. Can I just say, there, there are many churches today that are still trying to replace the activity of a supernatural God with our own ingenuity. Thinking we know better than God I was disheartened this week to see in the news that the Mennonite Church USA has officially changed their, their, their biblical beliefs. They, they voted and passed a new document saying that the LGBTQIA lifestyle is biblical. And, and then they voted on a second document that uh, was an apology for what they used to believe about the Bible. Now, now, let me just say, that's not everybody that's a Mennonite. Thankfully, this has been a rift in this denomination. Uh, but, but those that still call themselves the Mennonite Church USA, this is where they're going. They're, they're following some of, our, uh, some of our other denominations that have gone down that road and, and just said, you know what? I mean, I know what the Bible says, and, and we've actually believed this from the beginning, but, but now we're out here in the plain of Shinar, and, and it just seems to make more sense to us to just go ahead and, and go with what we think rather than what God said. And I'm telling you, church, I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm telling you, we don't need another Babel. We need another baptism. We need the clarity that comes from yielding to the Holy Spirit of God and asking him to have his way. We need another Pentecost in our generation. We need God to reverse the curse of Babel in our generation. God's people can't build with the bricks of popular public opinion. Because the only way his kingdom will be built is according to the way he said it in Zephaniah 4.6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Amen. 
There's three signs that we see here. Wind, fire, tongues. You know, the wind blowing represented that the presence of God was in the room. Aren't you glad that when we come on Sunday morning as a church, there is this, there is this communal sense of the presence of God in the room? I'm so thankful. There's not a perfect church out there, and this certainly isn't a perfect church, but I'm so thankful that there is this sense when we come together, the presence of God is here. There was not just wind, there was fire. And, and what verse 3 says is that the fire specifically fell on each of them. That's a reminder to me that, that just being in a Pentecostal church, just being around spirit-filled people is not enough. You need your own fire. The fire was on each one of them. So you don't, you don't have, you know, the Holy Spirit by osmosis. You, you have the Holy Spirit because your heart, your life is yielded to him. There's nothing I or anyone else can say to lead you into that outside of your own openness and yieldedness to the Spirit of God. Each one needs their own fire. And by the way, each one of us is responsible to tend that fire in our homes. We are the priesthood of the believers. We have to tend the flame. And then the third sign is the tongues. It says they began to speak as the Spirit enabled them. In other words, here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say the wind blew and the fire fell, and all of a sudden everybody uncontrollably just began to speak in an unknown language. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that all of a sudden the Holy Spirit just, just took over and, and, and made people say things you know, uncontrollably or they were in some catatonic state. They were just shaking and saying stuff and they didn't even know what happened. It doesn't say that. It says the Holy Spirit enabled them and they spoke with tongues. In other words, this is a picture of a church that is completely surrendered and submitted to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. That's why we need another baptism. We need to be a people of God that not only sense the presence of God in the atmosphere of faith and that we house the presence of God in our own walk with the Lord, but we need to be a people that when the Holy Spirit speaks, we move. There's a yieldedness to his leading, an immediacy to our obedience to what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. Now, I want to... I I want to teach a little bit here about this baptism. And I need you to know today that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a separate and subsequent work from salvation. You know, just the same way that I know there's many, many God-fearing Mennonites that would, would hate for me to lump them in with, with those that have, have changed their stance on the Word of God. I recognize there are some folks that, that would call themselves Pentecostals that I wouldn't want to be lumped in with either. So I'm not throwing stones at any, anybody for whatever title they carry. But I was actually, I was, I was wanting to fact check that information to make sure I didn't tell you something that just went viral on the internet that wasn't true. And, and it is true. But as I was looking, I, I came across several different denominations, uh, statements or or descriptions of Pentecostals. And one of the things that, that I saw multiple times that people said about Pentecostals, that they don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they said Pentecostals believe that you have to speak in tongues to be saved. I, yeah, I know, right? Like, really? 
I personally don't know any Pentecostals that believe that, but I'm not denying they're out there. But I'm telling you, you got to do some hermeneutical jumping jacks in acrobatics to get to that conclusion in the word of God. It's just not there. So let me say it again. You do not need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit to be saved. But what I also want you to know is that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is available for every believer. And I want to show you that in the Word of God. I I was teaching our new members class a couple months ago, and and I had somebody in the class ask me. They said, you're talking about water baptism? You're talking about Holy Spirit baptism? Are those the same thing? Or is there more than one baptism? That's a great question. And there is a place in Scripture that says there's just one baptism. So here, here it is, Ephesians 4, 5. There is one Lord. One faith, one baptism. So, so there's your answer. How many baptisms? Well, there's just one baptism. Oh, but wait, wait, wait. There's another scripture that says there's two baptisms. In fact, this one's from John the Baptist. So it, it, if you go by the title, The Baptist, I'm going to assume you're an authority on baptism. So let's see what John says. Mark chapter 1, verse 8, he said, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There's two baptisms. Okay, then what's the answer to the question? How many baptisms are there? Well, it's really simple. There's three. (laughs) There's three. And I just mentioned all three of them. There's there's water baptism. That's what John was talking about. I baptize you with water. There's spirit baptism. He said, but Jesus is going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. But before both of those is a baptism of salvation. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says, for we were all baptized by one spirit. Who baptized us? One spirit. So as to form one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. So just like the verse in Ephesians 4, 5 that says there's one baptism, this verse is talking about salvation. That's what it's talking about. When you put your trust in Jesus to be the Lord of your life, to forgive you of your sins, you become a a part of the body of Christ. Not because you got wet, not because somebody baptized you in water, not because you were filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says there is one name given under heaven by which men must be saved, Jesus' name. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So this baptism is a baptism of salvation. I was telling our water baptismal candidates earlier this year I said, you know, water baptism is not a means of salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's, you're saved when you express your faith in Jesus. If all we had to do to get people saved was get them in the water, I would stop preaching and I would become a lifeguard. Like, I could just go to the pool and just push people in. You're going to heaven. You're going to heaven. You're going to, you know, like, that would be so much less stressful. That would be great. I could just run through the grocery store or the super soaker, you know, if I believed in sprinkling, you know. But, but I, <laughs> but baptism in salvation is the first 
baptism, and here's, here's what every baptism needs. Baptism needs a medium. It means you need something to be baptized in, and it needs an agent, somebody to do the baptizing. And so the baptism of salvation, the medium is the body of Christ. When you get saved, you're immersed into the body of Christ. I don't understand people that say, I love Jesus, but I just don't really, I'm not really a church person. When you got saved, you were immersed into the family of God. 1 Corinthians 12 says we are the body of Christ. Hebrews says we enter God's presence through the veil, which is his body. Like we come in through the body. You can't get water baptized without getting wet. You can't get saved without being a part of the church. You might not show up enough, but you're still a part of the church. And if you don't deal with this here, you're going to have to deal with this there. We're all we're one church, one body, one baptism, one Lord. It's talking about the baptism of salvation. And the agent that does the baptizing is the Holy Spirit. That's what I just read to you out of 1 Corinthians 12. We're all baptized by one Spirit. The Holy Spirit baptizes us in salvation. Listen to this verse in Titus 3 and 5. It says, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ at salvation. The second baptism is the one that most of us think about when we talk about baptism. That's water baptism. Jesus said in the Great Commission, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Water baptism is an act of our obedience to Jesus now that he's the Lord of your life. Again, you don't get saved by getting wet. That's why we don't baptize infants in the church. Because you, you can only be saved when you confess your own sin. A, a, an infant can't confess their own sin. They, they don't even know they're sinful. And so baptism in water follows salvation. It's a way of obeying Christ. It's an outward illustration of what Christ has already done in your life. I died with Christ. I've been raised to new life. The medium for water baptism is water. And the agent is another believer. Oftentimes, in this church, I, I'm the agent that God uses. We don't just send you in the pool by yourself, like, hey, go dunk yourself. No, somebody gets in there. Somebody that loves Jesus baptizes you in water. Now, the third baptism is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, it says, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command to them. This is Jesus speaking. He said to his disciples, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water. But in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, Guys, this is different. This is a different baptism. That's what he's saying to them in this moment. And the medium that you're going to be baptized in is the Holy Spirit. That's the appropriate language of the Word of God. You're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. But the agent that does the baptizing is Jesus. John said, I baptize with water. He's going to baptize you. A pastor doesn't baptize you in the Holy Spirit by, by laying hands on you. You don't baptize yourself in the Holy Spirit by studying the Word of God. Jesus is the agent that baptizes us. He immerses us in the Holy Spirit. So here's the way it looks in the life of a believer. First, the Holy Spirit baptizes you in Jesus. The Bible says nobody seeks God unless the Spirit draws them. So the Holy Spirit, 
What is, what is he doing? He's, he's calling you in. He's calling you into the waters of salvation. Don't resist him. Don't fight him. If you don't know the Lord, if you don't have a relationship with God, that's the only baptism you need to worry about. You need to be saved. And the way we're saved, the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, is we confess our sins to God, and he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How does it happen? We confess with our mouth, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says. We believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. It's with the mouth we confess. It's with the heart we believe, and we're saved. You need that baptism. If you've been saved and you've never been water baptized, you should get water baptized. Because water baptism is, is what we call our first obedience. It's the way that we say, okay, Jesus, yes, I want to spend an eternity with you, but I also want to obey you here and now. And the first thing that he asks us to do is to be baptized in water. So I always encourage people, I don't care if you've served Jesus for 10 seconds or, or 10 years. If you've never been baptized in water, you should, you should do that. You should obey the Lord because he asked us to follow him in that step of obedience. And thirdly, if, if you want to actually not just go to heaven or just give a witness of obedience to the Lord, but if you want to live a life empowered by the Lord to do what he's called you to do, you need to seek that third baptism. You need another baptism, and that's the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And let me say this about all three baptisms. The way you get them is you receive them. I know that's really complicated, right? But imagine if I was trying to do a water baptism, but you wouldn't receive it. Like, imagine me in the water, you know, like, get, get, go, you know, and you're fighting me. I mean, I'm pretty sure I could still dunk the kids, but some of you guys, some of you guys would make it really hard. And yet a lot of people are, are, are that way when it comes to salvation. You know, they just, they put it off, they put it off. Well, you know what? If you don't receive salvation, you're not going to be saved. Mama can't pray you into heaven. You have to receive the gift of salvation. And it's the same with the Holy Spirit. There's some people that, well, if, if God, you know, if, if he slaps it on me, I guess I'll take it. <laughs> He's not going to do that to you. You have to receive. You have to yield the way they did in Acts 2-4. They yielded to the Holy Spirit. And he enabled them. That's the way we receive every baptism. The Holy Spirit baptism is unique. But God has promised it for every one of us. I, I could show you over and over again in the scripture. In John 14, 15, and 16. Right there on the last night before Jesus' arrest. He talks so much about the Holy Spirit. He talks so much. He said that the advocate's coming. He's, it's good that I go away. If I don't go away, he can't come. I, I know there's a lot I haven't talked to you about, but the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he'll teach you. Over and over, he talks about the Holy Spirit. And then, and then in Luke's gospel, at the end of his gospel, he tells them, stay in the city. Stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And then in Luke's second gospel, Acts chapter 1, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, You'll receive power. You'll be my witnesses over and over and over again. He communicates to him, there's another baptism. There's another baptism. Now, there's one more passage of scripture I want to show you today, and it's in Acts chapter 19. Go to Acts chapter 19. And this is years later, years later in the first century church. 
It says, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and he arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is in Jesus. So imagine these believers, all these years later, like two decades later, they're still believing what John was preaching before he ever pointed at Jesus and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Before he pointed Jesus out as the Messiah, he was just telling people to repent for their sins. These guys are still believing that. So Paul catches them up to speed. He's like, great, you, you believed, but let me tell you about Jesus. So then they put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, and it says they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So a baptism of salvation, and then a baptism in water. Look at verse 6. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. The reason I show you this one verse is because this one passage illustrates, and, and I jumped over about five other ones between Acts 2 and Acts 19. This passage illustrates what the typical protocol of the church was in the first century. It was belief that the Holy Spirit deals with the hearts of men, that the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ, into the family of God, and that we respond in obedience to that with water baptism. And then their next impulse was Holy Spirit baptism. So Paul just says, well, did you receive? I mean, the first thing he wants to know when he meets Christians way out in Ephesus, never been out here before, hey, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Oh, you don't even know about Jesus? Well, let's back up. Let me get you to Jesus. Now let me lay hands on you. That you would receive the fullness of the Spirit of God. On the day of Pentecost, there was wind, there was fire, and there was tongues. The wind and the fire was a, a, a familiar representation to them of the manifest presence of God. They understood that from what they knew of the Old Testament. God's presence is here. But after that moment on the day of Pentecost, those things go away. We don't see fire. I'm not expecting fire to light on your head in just a moment when I pray for you. Not expecting a sound of wind. Might happen. Not expecting it because we don't see a pattern of it in Scripture. They were a unique way that God said, this is the new thing I told you was coming. I'm going to give you some familiar signs of my presence so you know it's me. But the new thing is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And the third sign was the gift of tongues. And of those three signs, that's the one that we don't see go away. They were filled with the Spirit in Acts 2, again, in Acts 4, again, a couple chapters later, again, in, in chapter 10, in 16, in, in 19, and we see the pattern, and then Paul, who writes two-thirds of the New Testament letters, talks extensively about speaking in tongues and praying in the Spirit, along with many other gifts of the Spirit. But what's unique about this gift is that, aside from the the gifts that we express in operation in a church service, he says there's this powerful, powerful sign of the fullness of the Spirit, that every believer can pray with new tongues. 
And so I, I want to I pray for us today at the end of this service that, that the Holy Spirit would, would baptize us as a church. Because it's too easy. It is too easy. In, in our day of endless information, it is too easy to look at the Word of God and then to assess the culture and start building with the bricks of Shinar. We don't need Babel. We need a baptism. We need the Holy Spirit to manifest His presence in our midst and on each one of our lives individually and find us in a posture of total yieldedness. You know, James, the brother of Jesus, said this. He said, all, all the unruly beasts of the world have been tamed, but no man can tame the tongue. I don't know, maybe it's just my personal conviction, but I kind of tend to think maybe that's why speaking in tongues was the initial physical evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Because the hardest thing to control for any of us is our mouth. <laughs> what greater sign that God is in control and I'm not than for me to actually pray things that do not come from my understanding, that do not come from my my soul, my soul is my mind, my will, my emotions. The Bible says that when you pray in the spirit, your spirit prays. I don't know about you, but I need my spirit to pray. Because sometimes my mind doesn't know what to say. The Bible says in, in, in the book of Romans, Paul says that when we pray in the spirit, we pray the will of God. How cool is that, that we could actually be praying the will of God, that the Holy Spirit would be interceding through us. The will of God. There's times that I, the reason I'm praying is because I don't know the will of God. So there's no way in my understanding I know what to say. But, but I'm so thankful that, that the Holy Spirit lives in me. And that he's gifted me with the ability to, to pray in the spirit. Not, not in my soul. Not in my intellect or my understanding. But to pray in the spirit. And that when I pray in the spirit. The word of God says the Holy Spirit prays the will of God through me. I've had people ask me before, like, do I have to speak in tongues to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I say, no, you get to. You get to. It's a gift. You don't have to. But, you know, when, when someone's baptized in water, they know it because they're wet. You don't have to wonder. Did you get baptized today? Yep. And so, so nobody comes out of the upper room on the, Holy, on the day of Pentecost going, I, I don't know, was that it? I, I think. Did I? I don't know. Did you get it? Did I? I don't know. I think I got it. No. That's why we call the gift of tongues the initial physical evidence. It's not the only evidence. Uh, in fact, it's problematic if the only evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life is that you can speak in tongues. Because let's be honest, if you listen to other people long enough, you can fake it. I mean, you know, who, who am I to say if you're faking it or not? The Bible says when we speak in tongues, it's unfruitful to the human, human mind. So, I don't know. But you know. And God has given us evidence and so I just, I want to 
I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would baptize. And, and we're out of time. I know I need to wrap this service up. But I want to ask if you just stand with me to honor the presence of the Lord. And, and just to reverence His presence in this place. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We welcome you right now, Holy Spirit. Thank you that your presence has been with us throughout this whole service. We sense the, the cloud. We sense the wind. The Lord is in this place. God, I pray that there would, there would be a fire that is kindling on the altar of our lives right now. Lord, as you've called us to be a royal priesthood, Lord, we want to tend the flame. We want to fan into a flame the gifts of God that are in our lives, as Paul told Timothy. We want to be the ones that fan it into a flame. And God, I pray today that there would be a yieldedness in the church, a complete confidence in the promise keeper. Jesus, you said, go and wait for the promise of the Father. They weren't looking for tongues. They weren't looking for fire. They weren't looking for wind. They were looking for your presence. And that's what we're seeking right now. Holy Spirit, we welcome you in this place. We welcome you right now to come and fill the church. God, forgive us. Forgive us for thinking that we know better how to build the kingdom. Forgive us, Lord, for, for, for backpedaling from the supernatural and staying within the safe margins of our own understanding. When God, you said in your word, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. God, we want your thoughts. We want your ways. And so we need to lean not into our own understanding. We need to begin to acknowledge your presence. We need to begin to appeal to the heavens, Lord, for wisdom, for discernment, for strength. God, I thank you for the promise of power that was delivered on the day of Pentecost. Lord, we need power. We need power to be effective witnesses. God, I thank you, Lord, for, for the ability. Your word says when we pray in tongues, our spirit prays. And some of us, Lord, we've been so limited by what we understand and what we don't understand. We don't even know how to pray. God, would you take us beyond that in this moment? Would you allow the spirit of the Lord just let our spirit commune with your spirit with deep groanings of intercession, praying in the spirit? If you're filled with the spirit, can I just encourage you just begin to lift your voice? Just begin to lift up your heavenly prayer language. Just begin to pray out. Pray out now. Some of you, you've never, you've never received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But just the same way you were baptized in water, just receive it. Just allow the Lord to fill you with His Holy Spirit. And He's just going to begin to let a new language of prayer just rise up from within you. Jesus talked about it in John 7, 37. He said, if anyone's thirsty, come to me and drink, and out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Verse 38 says, he said this speaking of the Holy Spirit. That's what he wants to happen for you right now. I don't know what it feels like in your life. For me, it, it feels like just a stirring. It starts in my stomach, and it just kind of rises up to my heart, and I just give voice to it. I just let the Holy Spirit begin to pray. Thank you, Holy Spirit.
Thank you, Lord, that your word declares that when we pray in the spirit, we pray the will of God. There are some of us here, we don't know what to do. We don't know which direction to turn. We're looking for answers. Thank you that right now, as the spirit prays through us, we can pray the very will of God for our lives. Jesus, we just welcome your spirit. We invite the spirit of Jesus to just pray through us. Lord, align our hearts, our lives, align our church with the will of God today, even as we pray. Thank you for the promise in your word. In Corinthians 14, 4, that says, when we pray in the spirit, we edify ourselves. God, some of us are discouraged today. Some of us are depressed. We need to be edified. We need to be lifted up, God. Let the spirit of the Lord lift our countenance as we pray in the spirit. Jesus, Jesus. Some of you, even this week, you're going to just be driving down the road and just, just be praying in the Spirit. Just Somebody might look at you and they go, it looks like that person is just babbling. This is not babbling. This is dependence on the plan and the purpose of God. This is another baptism. This is saying, God, I, I, just, I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to just stay in the limited confines of my finite perspective. I want to tap into the unlimited power of an infinite God. Take me beyond my understanding. Spirit, pray through the church. Spirit, lead the church. Spirit, empower the church to be your witnesses to the ends of the earth. Jesus, we call on you today for a fresh baptism of your Holy Spirit. Fill our lives, Jesus. And Lord, we, we're not just interested in praying in the Spirit. We want to listen in the Spirit. Lord, give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen. Amen, amen, amen. Yeah, let's give the Lord some praise for his word. Amen. Amen. Can I just encourage you today? I know I'm preaching this message on Pentecost Sunday. and We've talked about the annual festival, but, but Pentecost is not about an annual event. Acts 2-4 again said they began to speak as the Spirit enabled them. They didn't just speak in tongues, by the way. They went out into the street and they preached the gospel and people got saved. If our encounter with God ends with a little prayer, we've missed, we've missed it entirely. They began to speak. And if you'll allow the Holy Spirit to, to teach you how to pray in the Spirit, I promise you it'll be easier to speak in English or whatever your first language is, it'll be a whole lot easier to hear the Lord tell you what to say to a lost person in your native tongue if you'll allow Him to teach you how to pray in the Spirit. And so let me just encourage you that, that they began on that day. And so we're not ending the service and crossing a finish line and going, well, that, that was good. I, did you get it? I, that was, you know, it's over. No, it's the beginning of something. And I want to encourage you to do what they did in the Old Testament and in the New. Let Pentecost be a day that you say, I'm going to move towards the Spirit of God, and I'm going to trust that the Spirit of God is going to move towards me. And if you'll come to God with that heart and say, God, I want what you want for me, I promise you, He's not out of resources. He's got more. He's got more for you. He's got more for this church.
So let's believe for greater things. Amen? Come on, one more time. Can you just give the Lord a hand clap of praise for his word today? Amen.